Um, when I was a kid, I took piano lessons from our next-door neighbor. Uh, she was a super kind and patient woman. Uh, we were, my brother and I were, were really good friends with her two sons, and so their home felt like home. Uh, we could just always just walk into their house, and uh, they were like second parents to us. And uh, so it was a great place to be introduced to music. I loved it, especially the stickers she'd place at the top of my sheet music after I learned a particular piece. I was a little kid, so stickers were my thing. Uh, I had a sticker book. Did you? Um, but as a... <laughs> whatever, all right? I had scratch and sniff ones, too. Remember those? One that smelled like chocolate. <laughs> but as I got older, things changed. To be more accurate, I changed. Uh, I became too cool for piano school. The keys just weren't where it was at. Sure, I tried moving from the upright piano in our living room to a really sweet synthesizer in my bedroom, but it still wasn't cool enough for me. I wanted to be like this. <laughs> Anybody know who that is? Eddie Van Halen, yes. Oh, man, they rock. Might as well jump, right? Um, the way, the way Eddie could shred the guitar, run around the stage, kick his legs up in the air, now that was cool. And I didn't think you could do that sitting behind a piano. So I told my parents that I quit. No more piano lessons for me. Nope, I was going to learn the guitar. I was going to be a rock star. So I told my parents that, that you know, this is what I was going to do. I traded in my synthesizer for a black Charvette with a whammy bar. Now I know, according, you know, in the world of guitars, it's a pretty entry-level guitar, but it was cool. It had a whammy bar. Um, now, of course, if I was going to be a real guitar hero, then I had to learn how to play guitar. So I signed up for lessons at a small music studio near our house, and I thought to myself, this was going to be the beginning of something great. Or so I thought. Let's just say my experience of becoming an aspiring guitar hero was less than what I hoped for. I'd show up for my lesson once a week, and uh, I remember sitting in this cold metal chair in the hallway while I'm waiting for the, the, the student who's in the room to get out. And then you'd go in there, and this room was no bigger than a closet. It's like you could barely fit in there with your guitar. Um, and my teacher was nice enough, but, uh, I mean, I don't have doubts about his nicety, but I do have doubts about his methodology. Each lesson was roughly a half hour, which is, I think, pretty standard for guitar lessons, but... It's what we did with that half hour. Basically, he would say, what song do you want to learn? And I'd bring it on a little cassette tape, uh, say, Jump by Van Halen or Blackbird by the Beatles, and I'd bring the cassette tape, and he'd stick it into the little cassette player, and he'd basically listen to the song, and he'd noodle on his guitar, and kind of, if he didn't know the song, he'd learn it. I mean, he was pretty good. And, and we'd spend like 20 minutes of the lesson of him just listening to the song, and and then writing out the tablature. Now, if you're not familiar with tablature, I likened it to kind of like taking a famous painting and then creating a paint by colors, by numbers, so that someone who has no idea how to paint can kind of fake their way through painting. And I know tablature has its place in guitar, in learning guitar, but this is all I learned. And so a good portion of the lesson result was just him playing the guitar and me watching him. It's like, wow, you're amazing. But can you help me be amazing too? Um, and I'd go home with the tab thinking that I had what it took to, to play a guitar classic. Well, after about a year of lessons, this is what happened. 
I had learned how to play about 30 seconds, the first 30 seconds of about a dozen songs because I'd get bored with it and I'd bring a new tape of another song that I wanted to learn. I had a handful of chords in my vocabulary and I could fake my way through the 12-bar blues. But that was about it. And so my dream of becoming a guitar hero was slowly fading. I was growing tired of spending the majority of my lesson watching someone else play the guitar and then going home wondering if I really had the skills to play myself. Eventually, I lost interest and I stopped going to lessons altogether. And while I'm not an expert in the teaching methodology of musicians, looking back, I wonder if I was being taught what really mattered most. If I was being taught what really mattered most. And this got me thinking, might this be kind of similar to how some of us experience church? May I assume most of us are here because we aspire to, to see our lives and our communities become something good and true and beautiful. And, uh, you know, we show up maybe once a week like I did for lessons. And let's be honest, by and large, we sit and we listen to someone else talk. That would be me. <laughs> And we hear about other people's experiences, and then we're given a few things to go home and practice. And while there's absolutely nothing wrong with any of that, I mean, thinking about my guitar experience, I did learn how to play some songs. I was given enough chord vocabulary that at one point in my life, we actually led worship in a church, uh, back when worship songs were a little bit more simpler back in the day. But in the end, I never really considered myself a guitarist. And likewise, there's a huge benefit to having a show up to church on a regular basis. You know, there's community here. There is, is, is uh, inspiration. You will go away inspired at times. You will learn and you will grow in many ways. But as a pastor, I need to ask myself, are we helping each other discover and live for that which matters most? Is this an environment that helps to cultivate a genuine and growing relationship with God where we can avoid simply going through the motions? Because let's be honest, it's pretty easy to do that. Well, today we're kicking off a new series of talks entitled What Matters Most, where we're going to be exploring just this, asking questions like, what are we really doing here? What is it that we're really after? Who is it that we really want to become? What matters most? Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Um, I say it a lot, but I'm always honored and privileged to be a part of this community and, and to set aside some time in our week to, to honor you, to worship you, to share our lives with each other, and to open up some space for your spirit to work, to hear the scriptures read and taught, and to love and serve others. And so we say, come Holy Spirit, uh, may you have your way. We commit the rest of this morning to you in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read beginning this morning with Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18, and if you're not familiar with the Gospels, uh, this, this particular account is when Jesus first launches his ministry and he's starting to gather followers uh, around himself. This is the calling of the very first disciples. 
And this is how Matthew puts it. He says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, it's a very famous line, he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So I want to ask a very, very basic question this morning, a fundamental question. Who are you following? It's probably not a question we, we think about very often, but I want you to think about it. What comes, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear that question? Who are you following? Who are you shaping your life after? Who has the, the most influence in your life? Who are you following? Because here's the thing. Everybody follows somebody. All of us make decisions every single day about what's important, what matters most, how we treat people, uh, what to do with our lives. And we got those beliefs from somewhere, from someone. We've been formed, every one of us, by this complicated mix of, of people, places, and things. Parents and teachers, rock stars and scientists, friends and mentors. And we're taking all of these influences and living our lives according to which teachings we have made our own. Now, some may insist that they aren't influenced by any other person or any other system of belief or religion. They think for themselves. You know, you've heard that said before. I think for myself. I suppose that's an honorable perspective, but the problem is they got that perspective from somebody. They're following somebody even if they insist it's themselves that they are following. Everybody is following somebody. The only question is who? Who are you following? And I think when we ask the question, what matters most, especially in regards to our faith journey, we need to ask the question, who are we following? And when we read through the Gospels, one thing we quickly discover is that while there may be more to being a Christian than following Jesus, there is certainly not less. While there may be more to being a Christian than following Jesus, there is certainly not less. The church exists to make disciples of Jesus. That's why we're here. And whenever Jesus called someone to be his disciple, he did so by inviting them to literally follow him. Now, unfortunately, over the centuries, the church has often made faith into a formula of escape. You say this prayer, believe a certain, certain things about Jesus, and you'll get into heaven. One author calls this barcode Christianity. You know, I got my barcode. Now I can scan it when I get, I get to the pearly gates and I'm in. And so our churches are filled with believers. And we use that language all the time. Are you a believer or not? 
The churches are filled with people who have faith as if it's something we possess. But here's the thing, and I'm going to be brutally honest with you. It is possible to be a believer in Jesus and not be a follower of Jesus. It is possible to be a believer in Jesus, to believe certain things about Jesus, but not actually be shaping our life after the pattern of Jesus' life and not taking his teachings seriously. Now, I'm not trying to disbelief. Beliefs are incredibly important and they play in a very important role in our faith. But faith is primarily acceptance of an invitation to be on the way of Jesus, joining Jesus in his mission as he brings healing and wholeness and love to this world. It's not primarily a ticket out of this world. It is being in this world with Jesus, bringing healing and love and compassion and justice and mercy and wholeness in this world here and now today. Faith is more of a verb than a noun. It involves movement. As I would say, faith first involves following. It's first about following. And here's the thing, while it, this may be a challenging word, it's a very encouraging word because of the simplicity of it all. To make a mystery of faith is to misunderstand it because following Jesus is quite an obvious kind of thing. Take the passage we just read. We would never question whether Peter or his brother Andrew or James, his brother John, were followers of Jesus. We would never question that. Jesus invited them and they followed. <laughs> Could it be that simple? To follow Jesus does not mean that you have all the right answers. To follow Jesus does not mean that you have it all together. To follow Jesus does not mean that you don't have doubts. To follow Jesus does not mean that suddenly the shades go up, the light floods in, and the shadows disappear. To follow Jesus just simply means saying, yes, I want to follow you. And there's a beauty to that. It's super encouraging. Because it means that it doesn't matter what we bring with us. It doesn't matter what our past is like, what our present is like. Nothing can disqualify you from following Jesus. You just have to say yes and get on the way. It simply means you've said, yes, I want to try to orient myself around living a particular way, the kind of way that Jesus taught was possible, that you have this suspicion that the way of Jesus is, is, is quite possibly the best way to live, that you find his story compelling enough that you want to make it your story. And so when it comes to what matters most, I think this is where it starts with the question who are you following? Because Jesus' invitation hasn't changed. It's been the same for over 2,000 years. It's follow me. And the way we respond hasn't changed. It's either yes or no. Or maybe so. <laughs> and it's okay. Do you remember when you first learned how to ride a bike? Do you remember that moment? Humans have been riding bicycle-like machines for about 200 years. It's kind of interesting. And in our, our particular world, meaning like United States, our particular culture, I think uh, riding a bike, learning to ride a bike is kind of like a rite of passage. 
You know, the day that training wheels came off is like a, this transition from little kid to big kid. It's super cool. How exhilarating it is to fly down the driveway or the street for the very first time, balanced solely by our own shifting weight. And then once you get the hang of it, it becomes like no big deal. And then you can go like a year without riding a bike and then pretty much get right back on, kind of. So much so that the expression, it's like riding a bike, is now used of any skill that once learned, you've got. Well, I think there's a certain aspect of riding a bike that's similar to following Jesus. Have you ever seen a bike that only has one pedal? Probably not unless it's broken. Have you ever tried riding a bike with only one pedal, like with just one leg? It's not that easy. It's hard to get going. It's hard to get enough momentum to stay balanced. You need the two pedals with their two distinct but complementary motions working together synergistically. And I think following Jesus requires similar movements, two distinct movements working together synergistically. And the first movement the first motion of following Jesus is found in that, that beginning invitation, follow me. And I think we might call this first movement aspiration. Aspiration. Now, Merriam-Webster defines aspiration as, quote, a strong desire for something. But it's a very specific movement one takes with one's life, gathering all of the energies of your life towards something or someone that you desire. And because the desire is so strong, you're willing to give up, to sacrifice a multitude of other things because of it. Aspiration provides direction, it provides focus, it helps you make the decisions you make and why you make them. What you continually aspire to, you become. Another way to put it is what you worship, you become. Following Jesus requires aspiration. We see this in the calling of the first disciples. When Jesus invited them to follow, they quit their jobs, like on the spot. And some even left family. They made incredibly great sacrifices. Why? Because their desire to be like Jesus was so strong. They aspired to be like Jesus. Many scriptures express this idea of aspiration toward Jesus in his life. And one that I like is, uh, and I think speaks really well, is, is Hebrews chapter 12, the first two verses. And the author of Hebrews says this, he says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that is, all the others who are on the way of Jesus with us, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. See, the writer of Hebrews encourages us to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's a very specific kind of thing. We're fixing our eyes on one point, on one thing. Other translations say, looking unto Jesus. I think that captures the spirit of aspiration really well. 
And to be clear, this isn't simply a cold academic study of Jesus. It's not believing certain things about Jesus or even learning stories about his life as, as uh, important as those things are. No, aspiration is the desire to live in close proximity to Jesus. If you want to become like someone, you have to be with them. If you're an apprentice of someone, you spend time with them, learning a trade, learning from them as they pour into your life. Fixing your eyes on Jesus is something we do on the way of Jesus. It means we are following Jesus. It means we are gathering all of our energy toward this one aim. And that's necessary because we are so easily distracted. And distraction is the enemy of aspiration. Which is why the author of Hebrews says, throw off those things that weigh you down. Find healing in those areas that keep you, keep you bound so that you can run, so you can walk the way of Jesus without distraction. This is why practicing spiritual disciplines, why spiritual formation is so incredibly important as we learn to follow Jesus. Spiritual disciplines, you might say, are doing certain things that position us on the way of Jesus, that position us and help shape our lives so that we can spend time in, in, in his presence. And throughout this series, we'll talk about some of what those core spiritual practices are. Aspiration is critical to following Jesus. As I said earlier, we're all following someone. The only question is, who is it that we're following? It doesn't matter if we've been a Christian for 20 years, 30 years. We can still ask the question, who am I following? What am I aspiring to become? Where are my aspirations taking me? How are they shaping my life? I come to church on Sunday, but then during the week, who do I follow? Who has the most influence in, in, in how I see the world? And how I make decisions. Celebrities, politicians, pundits, other various teachers. Who are we following? I think for a lot of us, it's a mix. Yeah, we follow Jesus, but we also follow this person and that person. But who do we primarily follow? Who is central to our aspirations? That's the first movement. That's the one pedal but like riding a bike with one pedal, it doesn't simply provide enough momentum, enough power to, to get going and keep going. In fact, on its own, aspiration can leave us sometimes disappointed. We might fail, we might fall, we might give up like I did playing guitar. I needed more than that. There's another critical movement in following Jesus, and I think it's found in, in the second statement uh, of that Jesus that's part of Jesus' invitation. It says, follow me and I will make you. Follow me and I will make you. Or we might say, and I will shape you or I will form you to become someone who's on mission with me. Which is how I would interpret fishers of men. Follow me and on the way... I will shape you. I will do this work in you that allows you to be on mission with me, to do the stuff I did. This second movement is what I might call inspiration. 
Now, the typical way we define inspiration as being inspired to do something or feeling really moved by something we experience is not really what I'm talking about here. Inspiration, as it's used in Scripture and as the original word implies, if you look at how the word is, is, even, is even broken out in its syllables, inspirited, inspiration. Inspiration occurs when God, when God infuses someone or something with his own life and power. We are inspirited. Inspiration is more than a noble feeling. It's a divine empowerment. So while we, while we our job is to say yes to following Jesus and getting on the way of Jesus, it is Jesus himself who does the, the making, the forming, the shaping It is Jesus who transforms us into those who bear the image of Christ in our everyday lives. It's Jesus who empowers us to participate in mission. And I think this is expressed beautifully in John's gospel. This happens to be in chapter 14. And this section of John's gospel is what scholars refer to as the farewell discourse. Because it occurs right before his arrest and betrayal. And so Jesus is sharing some teachings. He's sharing really a lot of just encouragement to his disciples because they get this feeling that he's no longer going to be with them very shortly. That's why it's called the farewell discourse. He's, he, he's preparing them for the time when he will no longer be with them. Well, if you're following someone and they go somewhere else, how are you supposed to follow anymore? Right? They're, they've only been with them three years They've just started this thing, and, and now he says, I'm going to be gone? Well, how can I be a follower of you when you're not here? So that's their concern. That's the concern that they have. And Jesus says this in verse 12, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me, whoever gets on the way with me, will do the works I've been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I'm going away. <laughs> because I'm going to be with the Father. So he's saying, you're going to be my presence in this world, you're going to do the same things I did, even greater things, because I'm gone. Okay, how does that work, Jesus? Well, continuing on in verse 16, he says, When I go to the Father, then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now that's inspiration in the truest sense of the word. Jesus is saying that, that, that yes, I will physically be absent, but you are not alone. I have made provision for you to follow me and to experience my presence just as, as much as I experience your presence by virtue of the Spirit. That you will experience my presence in the presence of the Spirit. See, following Jesus requires us to be with Jesus. Well, that provision has been made by the gift of the Spirit. We have direct access to Jesus through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. 
And Pat's going to talk a little bit more about this next week. But through this divine inspiration, this, this divine empowerment, we can experience the presence of Jesus in our lives and we can learn to be with him as one person is with another. We can learn to listen to Jesus, watch him move in a situation and follow his lead. We can learn to, to be sensitive to moments when he's saying go or stop or wait. I can allow Jesus to shape my heart toward things like love and kindness and peace and justice. I can allow Jesus to point out areas of distraction and brokenness in my life and then learn to draw on his grace in those moments. I can bring areas of pain and woundedness into his presence and release them into his care and experience healing. I can experience his gentle correction and his tender compassion. I can learn to see and love and serve Jesus in the face of another person. And as all of this occurs, I grow. Because we are formed as we follow. We are formed as we follow. Aspiration and inspiration working together to make us more like Jesus. As we aspire to be more like Jesus, God changes us. And as God changes us, we are empowered to aspire to be more like Jesus. Do you see how those two motions work together? Aspiration and inspiration. Aspiration and inspiration. Working synergistically together to keep us moving, to keep us on the Jesus way. We are formed as we follow. So let me circle back to that question. Who are you following? Who are you following? 